Amen. Thank you, Pastor and Miss Heidi. Appreciate that so very much. Tonight we'll be uh, celebrating, commemorating, and remembering with that song and the songs even we've sung this morning talk about. We'll be observing the Lord's Supper. And so uh, that salvation that we have found, that hope that we have found in Jesus Christ. And as I say it often, I sure am thankful that salvation is still available today. Amen. People can still be saved today, even as that song says. Thank you so much. First Timothy chapter number six. Let's get back in our study as we finish up this morning. And uh, First Timothy chapter number six, if you'll join me there. And uh, as we consider and talking about uh, socialism, a new way forward or path to failure and uh, finish it up today. And I'm excited about today because what we're going to do in looking at this, we're going to look at God's word in Christ's economic principles. God's economic principles. And so we want to hold that up to any type of economic theory or whatever the case may be and see where uh, that compares and contrasts and so forth. If you remember, last week we found ourselves here and one of the encouraging notes we made or statements was this, that all that happens economically, politically, and socially does not have a direct effect on the church. And that's an encouragement. Boy, that's a, that's a positive thing. No matter the political thing that we live in, the uh, how bad inflation is or is not, uh, whatever. Whatever the case may be, the fact is God's church is not directly affected. We talked about why is that? Well, the divine power that empowers the church and every believer, it transcends the borders of nations and countries, and we praise the Lord, it transcends the world, amen? And so that divine power, the Holy Spirit and God's power working in us, yet there is an indirect impact that affects the church, and that's on you and me. It affects our thinking, the knowledge that we operate by. What do we know? to be true. And that's how we started looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, because we want to make sure that our knowledge, our thinking is according to God's Word. And then it affects our attitudes, our attitudes of stewardship. And uh, because we can kind of, well, not kind of, we can adopt the views of the world when it comes to money and wealth and gain and so forth. And where that affects us in giving to God and affects us in our stewardship of our time, our money, our things, and what we pursue, what we're consumed with and uh, as consumers, right? And so that that's how it has an indirect effect or impact on the church. And so that's why it's crucial for us to look at God's Word and say, okay, let's make sure our thinking is in accordance with God's Word. And don't miss it, our attitudes are in accordance with God's Word, right? We talked about how the government desires to assume the role as a Savior. And in order to do so, to protect us, provide, and so forth, it, it's got to take over more control of every aspect of one's living. And in addition, to do the things it thinks it needs to do, it must raise taxes and gain more money. And so that affects you and I in what we might call our discretionary funds, our ability to spend. And so sometimes we, we take away from what we're giving to God and giving the, how we ought to, to help the needy, whatever the case may be. And so it affects us in that way. And, and we talked about the wrong attitudes that socialism produces. One of that is what we see today is that what people have is not satisfying. They are not content. That goes strictly against First Timothy chapter 6. We'll look at it here in a moment about being content. And not only do what they, not, what they have is not satisfying, what they do not have, they are jealous of. And we said contentment, therefore, is replaced by covetousness. Okay, a desire to gain and, and, and heap to ourselves and so forth, right? And so that's replaced. Contentment is no longer uh, ruling people's hearts and lives. We, we notice what's, what's bad about that. Well, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17, boy, it's clear that God says you ought not to covet your neighbor's anything. <laughs> and it, has, it sums it up in the end of that verse. Don't covet anything. You ought not to compare. And we'll see here in a, in a moment, the socialist loves to compare status, where we are, and equate equality 
quality with, if we're all have the same things, enjoy the same things, and so forth, which breeds covetousness and the looking at other people's things and adopting them. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, if you look at it, First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, notice it, very first statement, for the love of money is the root of all evil. And we added to that this thought, what this passage bears out, the love of more is the root of great discontentment. The love of money is the root of all evil. It causes all kinds of problems, verses 9 and 10. We saw it last week. But also the desire for more, the love for more, and the lack of contentment then uh, obviously then produces great discontentment, great discontentment. In the passage, in this one and others in Proverbs, I know I'm going quick, we're reviewing, but notice this passage, what does it teach us? It tells us our economic theories, beliefs, have moral consequences. Let me put it this way, okay? We'll talk about it in a moment that there's really only three ways the Bible says that you and I are to gain wealth. One of those is to steal it. The Bible speaks of that, doesn't it? it it's that, the people are going to steal. They'll take things, and we know that's true. The people will, that's one way to gain things, wealth and money and so forth. Now, I got some of your people's attention, amen? Because the Bible speaks to that. That's why. But is that right or wrong? The Bible says, thou shalt not steal. Okay, so listen to me, that then, your economic, because that's really an economic theory. <laughs> I don't have to work for it, I can just go take it from somebody else. That's an economic theory. In its base form, it's an economic theory. If you subscribe to that economic theory, does that have moral consequences? Just ask the guy sitting in jail. Okay, prison. It has moral consequences. So understand, when we make this statement, this is so crucial. Whether you're talking about embracing such a base, barbaric economic theory as, if I steal, then I'll have more, uh, it has moral consequences. But every other economic theory has moral consequences. Some are negative, some are positive. When we embrace God's economic principles, can I tell you, there are great moral consequences that are positive. When we live and operate by God's economic principles, can I tell you, we in turn please our God. We can hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I don't know about you, that's what I want to hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So when we make this statement, understand we're not just talking about the negative, there's also positive. Every economic theory that we subscribe to is going to have moral consequences. That's why it isn't just a political issue. It isn't just a, an economic theory issue. It, it's a social science theory. It's a moral issue all along the way. Verses 9 through 10, we saw that big bunch of moral issues and problems that spring from wrong economic beliefs. And yet what? It appeals to the natural man. Why does it appeal to the natural man? Because the natural man by nature, we are are therefore sinful, okay? And therefore, because we're sinful, greed and discontentment and covetousness will rule most people. And Paul, in this passage, why do we care about it? Why is it such a big deal? Because Paul says to Timothy, it's going to infiltrate the church. Infiltrate the church. Look at verse 3 again. Notice what we read last time. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil, surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. So immediately he's saying, listen, there's some guys who are coming in, they're going to mess up that doctrine of godliness we talked about last week, they're going to re- write it they're going to bring in their economic theories that oppose themselves to god's economic principles and they're going to say that wealth gain equals godliness the size of the uh the size of the house you live in the kind of chariot you drive yada 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 what's in your bank account and so forth that's going to determine your godliness literally that's what they were teaching 
And those wrong economic principles had entered the church and is creating all kind of havoc. Wrong doctrine, uh, envy and strife and so forth. That's what Paul is staying, saying here. And yet God in verse number 6, he gives us his answer to that, right? We saw godliness plus contentment equals great wealth or great gain. We saw it there, we read it, okay? But godliness with contentment is great gain. Then we notice that he says, here's how that comes about in your life and mine. Here is the practical way that you and I say we're going to live up to verse number six, two principles, two truths. The first is found in verse seven. Notice what it says. For he brought nothing into this world and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. We made this statement and here's the first moral truth we must subscribe to. Now listen, this deals with our thinking, our knowledge. We have to say, okay, this is the knowledge that I'm going to operate on. Not that, that I deserve something, that I'm entitled to something. No, no, not that knowledge. I'm going to operate with the knowledge that I brought nothing into to this world and I will take nothing out literally as we put it here we, we were empty-handed when we came and we will leave this world empty-handed the good news is God has a layaway plan we can lay up treasures in heaven and when we get there they'll be there whole different ball game that's what Paul even deals with in another passage and so forth the reality is but here listen the things of this earth I, I'm going to leave empty-handed the creature comforts of this world are fleeting and temporal unsustainable we looked at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2 Solomon made that point and so forth then we talked about how the wrong attitude has produced this term of entitlement what is entitlement and by definition, it's the fact of having a right to something. I deserve it. I'm entitled to it. It's the belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges and special treatment. We said it's a key word among many uh, socialists, economic theorists, and so forth. And what is happening is that attitude based upon the wrong knowledge, is fostered and it is nourished. And boy, it, it feeds, it appeals to our natural sinful self. Because listen, who doesn't want a free lunch? Who doesn't want a free lunch? Who, who doesn't want something for free? Who doesn't want to skirt the system? Doesn't want to uh, go outside the economic principles that God has established and get something for free? But listen, simple rule of economics. Everything costs somebody something. It's a simple rule of economics, okay? Everything costs somebody something. And my friend, every free handout, everything from the government is going to cost you and me somehow, some way, taxes or something else. It's going to happen, and it costs something. Somebody can buy something and give it to you for free. It may not cost you, but it costs somebody. And that's good. That's, that's biblical for you and I to help those who don't have things. We'll talk about that even today. And the reality is this attitude and spirit is just bred in it. Literally, if, the, if that can be nurtured, if that can be um, uh, fostered in people, then people are ready to embrace all economic and political and even moral beliefs yeah, that because they are convinced they will get them what they believe they deserve, even to the point of handing over control of one's life. That entitlement, I deserve it. It's, you have a right to it. You know, we talk about it, we've heard this a lot, and what, what happens? This mentality, this attitude of entitlement, what does it open the door to? Well, we've identified even here in First Timothy chapter 6, and we see it in the world around us, discontentment. Okay? I should have it. It's not fair. We need the government to step in to fix this. And so that discontentment, and what else does it open the door to? Well, jealousy and covetousness. That's not fair. If they can have that, enjoy that, so should I. I want what they have. And then we've seen this play out, and certainly the Scriptures allude to it. Uh, and then these emotions create great tensions in society. Strife. 
I mean, literally, even Timothy alludes to strife in the church, contention because of wrong doctrine, including wrong economic principles and wrong doctrine that it produced, that wealth and gain equals godliness. We finished last week, and again, this is review. We finished last week with this thought and this quote of somebody's observation. It is the thought process of jealous people that turns wealth inequality into the unfair category. Jealousy, covetousness, and greed is a powerful human characteristic that needs a reason to justify the emotion. That's a great statement observation. Boy, we, we will use that, and so uh, that thought of, uh, of co- be, those who are covetousness or covetous, uh, they are jealous of what other people have. Boy, they'll use the inequality to say that's what we need, and then it justifies uh, even harm. It justifies physical and criminal activities. Just say we're just trying to make this equal. That is all bred by a refusal to live by First Timothy chapter number 6. God's thing. So the question is this, and boy, we look around in America and say, man, how did this happen in America? How in the world, as American citizens, as a great nation that we are, how did we get here? Well, I would say first and foremost, one of the things I love about America is that it wasn't always so. A simple study of history shows that our once great country was firmly established upon the firmly held beliefs that freedom and the freedom to pursue happiness without government intervention was crucial to the success of this nation. You see, up until 1930s, governmental control over citizens, their money and their wealth and other aspects of their lives was very minimal. In fact, we could go back all the way to their founding fathers. Time would not permit us, but we could look at much of what they wrote and what they said. And the reality is this. The founding fathers and even those who followed them, they drafted the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, because they dreaded governmental interference in their private, public, and business affairs. And we would even say spiritual affairs, religious affairs. So the founding fathers established, they understood because they were escaping an overzealous uh, uh, government themselves. And so they set it up, and we as a nation, and it really held true for many of those years up until the early 1900s that there was very limited, oh, there was some, but there was limited government interference. But now listen, then in the early 1900s came a great calamity. A devastating event in the history of America, one even might call it in that day and age a pandemic. You know what it was? The Great Depression. The Great Depression came along, and boy, it wreaked havoc on our nation, uh, bringing it to its knees economically, and people felt it from coast to coast, and it did a huge, uh, shall we say, damage. It was a great threat with famine and other things to our nation. It opened the door and it ushered in some policies introduced by Franklin, uh, President Franklin Roosevelt that changed this. It was his New Deal, it was called, a recovery program for America. And the policies were designed to help a hurting, suffering, starving people. And certainly something needed to be done. Our nation was suffering. It was hurting. Some things needed to be done to help the people who were starving. And many of those policies were of great help to America's citizens. It alleviated some of the suffering taking place. But in the rolling out of these policies, and do not miss it, the American people handed over part of their independence in exchange for the government taking care of them. And dependence upon the government was born. Now listen to me. There is only one upon whom we should depend, and that is God in heaven. Okay? And so we see that that would, now listen, I, I'll say it in a moment here, but if these policies had been temporal, then they may have saved a great purpose to save our nation, to help hurting people. I, I would readily admit that, and, and that is true if they had been temporal, but the problem is they weren't. 
You see, the New Deal opened the door for progressive socialism to take root. Interestingly, don't miss this, interestingly, a modern-day proponent of socialism, Bernie Sanders, in a speech, you know what he described his own socialism policies as? He said this, quote, taking up the unfinished business of the New Deal and carrying it to completion. That was what he said. He says, look, this started it, and now I, my new ones, progressive socialistic theories and beliefs, is going to take it and complete it was intended. You see, if these policies, as I mentioned a moment ago, if they had been temporal, and if they had been shed once the country had recovered, things here in America would have been completely different. But they weren't. For years to come, the government maintained control, made many of these policies permanent. They set about methodically growing control, its control, over the lives of, the, of its citizens. Looking back, okay, in the 60s and 70s, I was only alive during part of one of those decades. But in the 60s and 70s, I believe historically, you and I can look back, and Americans' eyes started waking up saying, wait a second, something's not right. We're losing control of our own lives, and even the government, because it started out, we could say maybe, in, res- in response to the Great Depression, it started out with good intentions, but slowly but surely, we're giving up liberties, we're giving up things, and the government's taking more and more control of our lives. And I believe in the 60s and 70s, we saw many forms and uh, uh, demonstrations of revolt and rebellion against what was going on. We saw people saying, wait a minute, this, this isn't the best, this isn't the right, and this control that is taking place. The ever-expanding controlling government. But many bought into it because they believed what they were being told. You deserve these things, so let us give them to, them. Give them to you. 34 years later, 1964, not too far from here at the University of Michigan, a great salesman for socialism stood and told America, you know what he said? He said this, the time has come for us to embrace and accept, quote, greater government activity in the affairs of the people. May I just make a statement? We don't need greater government activity in the affairs of people. We need greater God activity in the affairs of people. In our thinking, in our attitudes, and what we do. Listen, you say, well, who was that? And uh, the Michigan State fans say, oh, yeah, see, that's just like the University of Michigan to have a communist in there pushing those things. Yeah, mm-hmm. All the Spartan fans are saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't a communist. It wasn't a leader from a socialistic nation. You know who it was? Our own president, Lyndon B. Johnson. He introduced what he called the Great Society Proposal in a speech on that campus, I believe, and I I may be wrong here, I believe it was a graduation speech. And he proposed the U.S. government create new welfare programs, expand food stamps, give birth to Medicaid and Medicare, fund the arts, and much, much more. Notice what one historian noted, and I think this says it all. This historian wrote, and a secular historian, it would also continue the departure, get this, the departure from nearly 200 years of American tradition and increase the federal government's involvement in local education significantly. President Johnson and those who supported his programs believe that greater government involvement in education, and in parentheses, and in all areas of life, especially preschool through high school, could break the cycle of poverty for poor families. They want to be the savior. 
There was a man who was credited with writing much of that speech. He was one of his speechwriters, President Johnson's speechwriters. His name was Robert Good, or Richard excuse me, Goodwin, primary writer of it. In his memoirs, this is what he wrote. The goal with this policy was the greater distribution of wealth, taking from the rich, giving to the poor through taxes and government programs. The intent of the speech was to tell Americans they, quote, deserved a new great society in which they were entitled to everything anyone else had in this nation. You can't write it any better to to match what socialism's set of beliefs. And so it ushered this in. And you say, what has been the result of the last 50 to 60 years? The answer is readily seen in a simple fact, a government established fact. It is estimated that in the years before the last couple years of stimulus checks and all that, 50% of the population received some form of government payout. One and two. And we're not talking about tax breaks. We're talking about an actual handout. Why? Why are so many Americans dependent upon their government? Because they're entitled to it. That's what they're told. Why? What, what does the population continue to say? The government needs to do more. Why? Because we deserve it. We're entitled to it. See, where we are in America has, has gotten us to the point where we have latched onto that term, but here's something, and don't, don't miss this. You see, our nation, our minds, we've replaced a different term with that term entitlement. Our founding fathers got it right, and do not miss this. I think this is the crux of the issue, but we have forgotten what our founding fathers have said. We left it because they based it on biblical principle. They based it on God's biblical economic principles. Do you remember what they wrote in the Declaration of Independence? Here's what they said. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Great statement, uh, great uh, formulation of thoughts and truths and facts by our founding fathers. But do you see the key word? Today, we are fixated upon the term entitlement. Do you see what our founding fathers were fixated upon? We have been endowed by who? Our creator. Totally different word. The word endow literally means this. We have been given something, an ability, an asset, a quality. We have been gifted this. They recognize, what our founding fathers recognize? We don't deserve anything, but we've been given something. We have been blessed already by a great creator, a great God. Uh, He has blessed us with what? Certainly rights, but also abilities, the means to live out those rights, to accomplish and achieve great things. And God has made it clear in his word. He has enabled us, endowed us with what we need to earn, produce, provide for ourselves, and even gain wealth. Deuteronomy chapter number 8. God says this, And thou shalt say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. You see what our Creator said? No, 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 no. We don't deserve. We are not entitled. No, no, no. We have been endowed by our great Creator to gain, to achieve. And our founding fathers got it right. And for 200 years, even our nation seemed to follow that. But sadly, our nation has departed, and I'm fearful many Christians have followed. We've forgotten. I'm not entitled. I am endowed, and praise be unto God that he has endowed us. There's a big difference here. 
One attitude says, I deserve it, so give it to me. The other says, God has given it, given me what I need. And through the use of what he has given me, I can do this thing called life. I have all that I need. You have to say, it's all about attitude. It's all about attitude. It is as simple as thinking the world owes me something or blessed be the name of God because he gave me something. I have the ability to work. I have the ability to labor. God, even in fact, he blesses me. He's given me an intellect. You and I as mankind and human beings, he's given us the ability to think and reason, bodies that work, and so forth, so that you and I could gain well. And Deuteronomy says the best, don't, don't think you've done this for yourself. Don't think the government's done it for you. No, no, no. It is God in heaven that has given you the ability to gain well to provide for yourself in many different ways. Uh, David understood it. He said this, the eyes of all, in Psalm 145, 15, 16, the eyes of all wait upon thee, speaking to God, thou givest them their meat in due season, thou openest thy hand and satisfiest the desire of just Christians? No, of every living thing. Even animals, we see David goes on to explain. Jesus Christ himself, he pointed out in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45, the second part. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Listen, I've used this illustration before. All around us we are surrounded by fields and we see the harvest, some already taken in, some working to take it in. And the reality is this, God doesn't go around, okay, say, listen, are you, are you a good person? Then I'm going to let it rain on your field. You're a bad person, no rain for your field. God doesn't do that. God is gracious and is good. He blesses even the just and the unjust. Boy, do we serve a great God. We serve a great God. And yet it shows us we are endowed by our creator. It is God in heaven that allows us gain. My friend, if you're a farmer here today, if you have any product and harvest that you are putting in barns or you are selling, that's because God has graciously given it to you. And the rest of us, if we take home a paycheck by what we do, God has graciously given it to us. But I work for it. I'm entitled to it. I deserve it. That is wrong in anti-biblical thinking. God endowed you. God gave you the ability to earn and think. And God, by his good graciousness, allows you and I to enjoy the fruit of our labors. The scriptures speak to that many times over. Let me just remind you, and I don't want to over-endate you, Write down these references. Look at them later on. James chapter 1, verse 7. James observed every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. It cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, no changing, neither shadow of turning. Okay, so let's put it in perspective. Socialism and erroneous economic theories, principles, and so forth, who have a set of beliefs that lead to a moral end or conclusion, they deny not only the endowment because it denies there's a God, but it also says this. Now, don't miss this. It replaces endowment that you've been endowed by God, given by God, with entitlement, and then entitlement produces that you should have demands. I demand this. I deserve this. And so it produces that attitude. Yet God's endowment, no business. When God says, I've endowed you, I've given to you, you know what that gives? A, a, a term we don't like today. You know what God's endowment produces in you and I? It demands personal responsibility. We don't like that term. We don't like that thought. That I've got to take care. That I've got to do something with what I've been given. To whom much has been given, much more shall be required. Whether that's talents and time and life here on earth. Reality is as God has endowed us and given us, there is much required of us. 
There is personal responsibility to take what God has given us and to use it wisely, to be wise stewards of all that God has given us. Boy, human nature does not like that. You know what human nature likes? It's mine. I can do with it what I want. You ever hear a little child say something like that? It's mine. Doesn't want to share, doesn't want to do Listen, what we have from the good hand of God, we like to say it's on loan from him, amen? He's entrusted to us to be wise stewards of all that he has given us. See, labor and work, we'll see that in a moment, is the ordained means, yes, yea, responsibility of proving for oneself, uh, of providing, excuse me, providing for oneself through using the abilities and skills that I have been endowed with by God. Now listen, three things, three ways, if you'll study the scripture, and I know I'm kind of boiling it down, but three ways that God has said in his word that you and I can get gain. How do we gain in this world? Young people, don't, don't miss this. Three ways. Number one, you can steal it. Number two, it can be gifted to you. Number three, last but not least, and probably the greater majority of it, you can work for it. These are biblical principles. God in his word, and we don't have time to look at all of it today. I'll write it down, look it up, ask me later. Those are the three ways, primary ways that God says, listen, this is how you gain. This is how you gain wealth, anything. It is gifted to you, you steal it, or you work for it. Stealing it is wrong. God's word establishes that. God gives gifts. That's wonderful. Others can give things. Praise the Lord for kindness and mercy and graciousness. And yet, the greater of this is you work for it. Some of you, when we started talking about socialism, you knew that we were going to arrive at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10. You probably already guessed it. Why? Here's the principle. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. <laughs> what do we call that? Personal responsibility. We understand, we can look in the Old Testament and, and follow through, even through the New Testament, Jesus Christ working with his disciples. There are always what we would call those who lie outside of it, those who are physically incapable of working, those who are mentally incapable of working. Can I tell you, God provides for them through his church, his people. We see that throughout scriptures. Even going back to the Old Testament, as God set up the economic system of the Israelites and he set up their system as a, as a country and a nation, he made sure the needy, the poor, those who could not work for themselves, even the widows and stuff were taken care of. And even in the New Testament, you see that principle. So when he writes this, this is for the majority, the most of people, able-bodied people. If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Can I tell you, can I just try to run a presidential campaign on that? Try to get that to go across. Try to get votes by saying, hey, listen, we're just going to follow the Bible where it says, it only worked once that I know of here in America, and that's the pilgrims. A man doesn't work. He's not going to eat. Well, man, I guess I got to work. Hey, you know what? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes necessity is the mother of invention, amen? It's the greatest motivation. It moves us. Somebody hungry, you say, hey, you, you need to work. I could tell you stories, and when people came by our church, when I was a youngster and my dad interacted with me, and my dad showed great wisdom and discernment, he would sometimes say, hey, I've got some work out here. Why don't you come help me? I'll, then I'll go buy you some food. I'll buy you some groceries. And these people looked like him like he was from another planet. You want me to do what? And yet I remember at least once, probably more times, and, uh, that my dad did that. I was in the presence, and the guy said, okay, I'll do that. Took out a coat or whatever. He went outside of my dad. We all three worked together. After that, my dad went and got groceries and filled up his gas tank and so forth. Hey, I'm a, you, you want to work? We'll feed you. 
Uh, there was great attitude. There was other times where we could tell physically they were incapable. They were in, in, in our church health, and my dad would help. Listen, it takes discernment and wisdom to apply the principle, but the pr- principle is true. Let's take it a step further. You know what all, also Paul said? Paul said to Timothy, he says, listen, let's take it a step further. If you're the head of a house, you have a responsibility. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith. Do not tell me economic principles are not a moral issue. He hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Man, that's strong language. God's principle. Man, you ought to provide. You have a responsibility to provide for your family, Dad. Uh, Family, you you have a job to provide for them and meet the needs that are there if you are able-bodied and capable. Strong wording, but it's God's plan. You see, the truth of this passage is we entered the world, we'll leave it empty-handed, so we must acknowledge that all that we have and get is truly from the hand of God. Whether he blesses us directly by direct provision or by us using and working with what we are endowed with to gain provision and wealth. What we don't have, now here's the hard part for some people, what we don't have is his will for us not to have. What, what we don't have. And boy, there, that flies in the face of so much. Uh, a lot of attitude out here, if I can just win the lottery and then I can have all, everything I could ever want. <laughs> Uh, listen, God, God has a will for what you have. I, I think of us in here, okay? There's some here who would qualify as rich. Some here who would be very wealthy. There's some here who would be on that poverty level. Most of us are probably in between somewhere on that spectrum. We get that. And yet, we're, we're all different. It doesn't have to be equality. God's blessing is still upon all of us. God provides. And I'm called to be content. I, I'm, I'm going to leave here empty-handed. I came here empty-handed. So we are challenged, if we're not going to be able to take it with us, why make money our God, the object of all of our labors? Why do we equate money and wealth and gain and equality with happiness? Solomon saw the futility of it as we saw last week. Do we? Don't be ungodly in our attitude of greed, our love of money, our coveting of things that are temporal, especially when we remember it all be burned up someday and we will be long gone. You know what we would say that this verse number seven kind of helps us to understand true wealth and gain is found in pursuing godliness while being content with all that God does or doesn't put into your hand. May I ask you today, what's your thinking like? What knowledge are you operating off of? Are you operating off of the knowledge? Well, I deserve it. I'm entitled to this. Are you operating off the knowledge? Boy, man, my God, everything that I have is from him. He's endowed me. What's your attitude like? Based upon that now, do you say, well, I deserve it. I, I should be given more. Do you say, man, everything I have is, is from the gracious God of heaven. Even the very ability to labor and earn and achieve is a gift from him. Listen, sometimes you and I head off on Monday morning. We're going to work. Like, man, I wish I didn't have to go to work. We ought to be saying, boy, I sure am thankful God has blessed me with a healthy body to go to work, to earn, to gain. Then I can do so. Those who are retired, praise the Lord. He allowed me to have a healthy body for so many years to save. And prepare down the road. Look at verse number 8. Here's the second moral truth real quickly. Verse number 8. Notice what he says. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Okay? So the first one was, we came in this earth and this world empty-handed. We're going to leave it. That's the knowledge. That's the thinking. I've got to get my thinking right because that will help produce contentment. Then secondly, here's the attitude. With your stomach full and your body clothed, you have all you need. 
And having food and raiment, let us be there with content, he says. Uh, having your stomach full, your body clothed, you have all that you need. That's the right attitude. It produces a contentment that's not focused on getting more, not consumed with materialism and money, but rather on godliness. It's an assurance that is taken uh, from God's word that we will have everything we need. God will provide. I love David's statement. Many of you know it. Psalm 37, 25. I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Man, our God takes care of us. When we follow his economic principles, when we learn to live life as he dictates, boy, we find him faithful. The fact is this, now don't miss us. We are given money. We are to use it, not love it. The love of money is the root of all evil. The desire for more is going to be the, the, the root of all discontentment. So we have money. God says use it. How does God want us to use it? Here's biblical principle. You say, okay, young people, as you grow older, you earn an income. As you have money, how does God want you to use what he has provided for you? What he's endowed you? Number one, provide for your basic needs in having food and raiment. God certainly provides for us to purchase those things, to take care of ourselves. And let's be honest, we here in America, we eat well. We dress well. That would have been a great time for an amen, folks. Because look at you. you, you eat well. Look at me, I eat well. We're dressed well. We are blessed. So he does provide for us for our basic needs. Number two, you know what else he wants us to do? Share with others who cannot provide for themselves. That's scriptural. Help those in need. Be, and man, that's what we're about. We want to help those and give. And we, uh, we try to do so. Benevolent fun and so forth. Number three, prove his goodness. Do you ever think about this? That you and I have testified, I trust in God. I depend on God. Not man, not my money, nothing else, no government. I depend on God. And as he provides, it is a testament to the goodness of God. That you and I live in a house, that we have vehicles that work, that you and I can eat. We'll have a great lunch. We'll do well this week. Boy, that is a testament to the goodness of God. Many of us have so much beyond and above food and raiment, and that is only because of the good grace of God. The proper attitude. That's what Paul's giving at Timothy. Timothy, having food and raiment, let's be anything above that, I like to say to my kids, it's a bonus. Right? It's a bonus. It's a blessing of God. Boy, we're content with this. But anything that comes above and beyond that, woo, God is good. We went out the other week, or the other day, rare occasion. We went out to eat together as a family, and that's cost an arm and a leg, by the way. Uh, but we went out to eat. We sat down in a restaurant. We were eating and so forth. In fact, uh, God had blessed us with a, a gift card or two, so we're going to use that. We're sitting down, and we're just about finished. And another waiter, not our, walked up and said, hey, a couple that just left wanted to pay for your meal. Praise the Lord. Boy, isn't our God gracious? And I would have loved to be able to find those people. I thought I might be a little weird if I chased them out in the parking lot. Um, but they had already gone and pulled out and so forth. I didn't chase them. But I would have wanted to say thank you personally to them. We're so grateful. And, and we prayed for those people later that God's blessing would be upon them. Because we'll see in a moment. You know what God's principle is? You give, you'll receive. That's an economic principle of God. We'll see in a moment. I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself. But reality is, hey, can I, our God is good. See, some of you have driven by somebody's houses. You've gone to a garage sale, and you found exactly what you need. My dad used to joke with my mother-in-law. She loved yard sales. My dad got on her bad side because he said this, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Okay? It's kind of true sometimes. 
I found some, we found some great things at garage sales ourselves. We've even found some great things at the end of somebody's driveway they're getting rid of. Can I tell you, even something as silly and small and insignificant as that is the blessing of God. He provides. Our God takes care of us. And we, in turn, want to share with others. We want to give to others. Notice this. We not only prove his goodness, but you know why God has blessed you and I? To do his will. Sometimes finances are needed to do his will. We have our missions conference coming up. Can I tell you, to take the gospel around the world takes finances. It takes faith, promise, giving. And so you and I, God has blessed us so that we in turn can give to what? To do God's will. Go ye into all the world. Preach the gospel. It takes it. So God gives to us so that we can use it and spend it wisely if we may put it that way. The attitude is opposite of what we see in verses 9 and 10. The desire and pursuit of riches, that doesn't lead to godliness. What does it say? Look at verse 9 and 10. It leads to trials and snares and temptations. It leads to foolish lusts that drown men. You know what Solomon said? He said, listen, he is a rich man, one of the richest, if not the richest that ever lived. He said, wait a second. If you love riches, that is a love that will never be reciprocated. It's a love that will never be returned. You will never be fulfilled. He said this in Ecclesiastes 5.10. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Nor he that loveth, now get this, they want more. That, the person who loves it just wants more. They'll never be satisfied with abundance, or those who love abundance, excuse me, with increase. This is also vanity. Now that flies in the face with socialistic theology, <laughs> they call it that way, their belief system. The holy grail of socialism is this. Happiness is found in everything being equal, in you gaining more, in you being fully satisfied. Literally, this is what a socialist describes. Socialists perceive the perfect world to be one where everyone is happy. They see equality as a necessity for happiness as comparing status in their current life is a major element of current happiness or unhappiness. Okay, so do you understand what it's saying? It's equating. What does a socialist believe? Here, you know what happiness is? Okay, I see what Pastor Aaron has, and boy, my tie isn't as good as his, so I need to have exactly the same good a tie. Same suit. We need to be equal. And then that will bring me happiness. You know what Solomon, the richest man that ever says? says, listen, I, I got something to tell you. Riches ain't going to make you happy. Uh, you want more and you think, if I just have more, if I have as much as Pastor Aaron has, if I have, as much, if I have as much as my neighbor, that'll make me happy. He says, listen, the person who loveth increase, increase is not going to make you happy. It's not going to fulfill you. It's not going to make you happy. See, God's economic principles can be summed up in four statements. Listen to me carefully and I'll, I'll be done. Number one, here you go. One of God's economic principles, number one is this, okay? Work and labor diligently. We've already seen 2 Thessalonians. We've already seen these passages where we're out of work. I would add to it. I'm not going to expound for sake of time. You can look them up later. I would add Proverbs 14.23, Proverbs 28.19, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, chapter 2 and verse 24. These all speak to labor and work. God has designed you and I to earn the majority. Yes, things are gifted. We certainly shouldn't steal. But you and I can gain and gain wealth, uh, put in our bank accounts, and provide for ourselves, do those things that God wants us to use money for. How? By work and labor. Young people, you ought to have a good work ethic. It's biblical. You ought to know how to work and work hard and work diligently. That's God's design for you and I. From the Garden of Eden on, after God says you're going to work, and yet God allows us to enjoy the good fruit of that labor. Praise be unto him. 
It's a blessing. He's, he's good to us in that way. So, number one, work and labor diligently. Number two, you know what God says? Save and spend wisely. Wow. So, number one, work and labor. God wants you to use what you've been endowed with, your body, your ability, your skills. Use it. And then also save and spend wisely. You know the problem is, especially here in America, too often we spend more than what we earn. That's the gap. When the real gap should be between what we earn and what we spend. You know what happens when we spend less than what we earn? Here's an economic term. We've saved. That's our savings. When we spend less than what we earn, it's called saving. And God, in in his word, speaks of laying up treasures in heaven while also being wise to save here on earth. I love Proverbs 13, 22. You know what it says? You know what a good man is? It's one who leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, his grandchildren. He has saved. He He has put it away to provide and meet the needs and even above and beyond. And the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Proverbs chapter 21, you should write that. Read through that. You'll see so many principles about saving and how the wise man does it, the wicked doesn't. Uh, Saving many different observations, principles found throughout. Throughout the entire book of Proverbs is there. So number one, work and labor diligently. Number two, save and spend wisely. Then number three, you know what else God's word says? Plan and prepare circumspectly. You know, things change economically very quickly, don't they? Inflation can go skyrocket high. Uh, the stock market can fall out. Other things can happen. People can lose jobs. There's things that are uncontrollable to us. It's never guaranteed, and it's best to be prepared for whatever comes. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 23 through 24 uh, puts forth this thought. Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks. What's in your bank account? I don't know. What's in your check account? I don't know. How's your budget? I hope I meet it this month. Wait a minute. That, that's not following biblical principle. God says, plan and prepare accordingly. Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks. Look well to thy herds, for riches are not forever. So plan and prepare. Look at what you have. Assess the situation. Allocate what you have to what you need. Budget accordingly and then prepare for the future. That is planning and preparing circumspectly. You know what? Man, it scares me. It's basic, but so many miss that today. They they don't plan and prepare for the future and look ahead. Fourthly and finally, I know I'm moving quickly, but I hope you'll think about these biblical principles. Notice fourthly, Give and receive abundantly. Now, this biblical principle, I like to say it's out of this world. Because <laughs> nothing here on earth is, has this economic principle to it, any kind of belief. But you know what Jesus said? Luke chapter 6, verse 38. He said, give. You remember what else he said? He said this. Give, and what's going to happen? It shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet out with all, it shall be measured to you again. Now let me ask you this. Is God a liar? No. He is not. So therefore, this is true. You give, it will be given back to you. Solomon, he'd go on, he says this. He makes an interesting statement, Proverbs eleven twenty four. He says, there is that scattereth, yet increaseth. He that gives, and yet he increased abundantly. And then he goes on. There is he that withholdeth more than is right, meat, but it tendeth to poverty. <laughs> Think about that. He, he that scattereth, he gives away, and yet he receives. Uh, and yet there's the person who withholds, and when he should give it out, he doesn't. 
Proverbs chapter 3 talks about that. When you have in the power of thy hand to give it, don't hold it back. In the power of your hand to give it. And, but some, there's one who gives, and guess what? That lends and t- tends to lead to poverty. Poverty. One last thing. I know I'm hanging on, but listen to me. Turn with me if you would. First, or Second Corinthians, excuse me. Second Corinthians chapter number 9 and verse 6. Real quick, and this will be it. We'll be done. Second Corinthians chapter 9. Second Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 6. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, teaching them basic economic principles from the Bible. He said this, But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. So when we said give and receive abundantly, we could also say bountifully for sure there. That's the promise. You sow sparingly, you reap sparingly, you sow bountifully, you'll reap also bountifully in context of giving. This is about giving to others and helping and so forth. Now, look at verse 10 and 11 of the same passage. This is amazing to me. Look at verse 10. Now, he that ministereth seed to the sower. Hmm. So he gives us the seed. Number one, it's on loan from him. He ministers to us the seed. Now, he that ministers seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food. He's going to take care of you. He's going to multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Now, notice verse 11. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. Man, what a statement. Do you understand what he says? Hey, you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. You sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. And as God gives you the seed to do that with, God's going to provide for you your food and he's going to multiply that seed that you said. And also, he's going to cause you to increase, be enriched in every area of your life bountifully. Now, some of us here have found out, boy, you can never outgive God. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You're enriched, man. Other areas of my life are blessed because I just give the seed that God has given me. He gives back. And boy, did he give back bountifully in every area? I'm enriched in many areas of my life, many areas of my life as I've given to him. And I don't know about you, but I sure do like God's economic principles. I like to follow them and live them out, not this world. Real quick, we're going to speed through things. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, let your conversation be without covetousness. Be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Thee. I love Job, and we, again, we don't have much time to say uh, about this. First uh, Timothy chapter uh, 6 and, and verse 17 says, uh, Paul says to Timothy, don't let the rich have confidence or trust in their riches. And listen, you and I may be blessed of God. We've had money and we've been provided for. Don't trust in that. Don't let your trust go to those riches. Keep it in God. Keep your confidence in God. Job observed that. He says this, If I have made gold my hope and have said to the fine gold, Thou art my confidence. And he says some other things. And then the, the result of that, if I do that, verse 28, This also were an iniquity, a sin, to be punished by the judge. Notice this. For I should have denied the God that is above. Man, if I trust and have confidence in the stock market and my savings account and money, the government to provide things for me, my goodness, you know what I'm just doing? I'm denying God in heaven because he is the one that I must look to and depend upon. Here it is. I'm done. What, what is, I said that three times. This is real. Um, what are believers to do? Because I promised you, how do we live in an so, increasingly socialistic nation? Here, here's what we do. Notice it, if you will, up here. Number one, be able to identify socialistic beliefs and policies. I trust we've helped you. There's much more. You can study it on your own. 
and show where and how they are in biblical. That's the key. Okay? We want to hold it up against Scripture. These last few economic principles I gave you from God's Word, certainly there might be more, but these are basic. You hold that up against it, ugh, it kind of shows the error of it, doesn't it? It reveals, wait a minute, that's not what I want to subscribe to. That's not what I want to encourage. So make sure that we can do that because the world is in great need of Christians knowing what they believe and why they believe it and speaking up for it. Okay, number two, you know what else? Pursue, pursue godliness with contentment, thereby experiencing great gain. You and I can show that God's goodness, we can, we can say that this works by pursuing it. Godliness with contentment, we can show, yeah, that equals great gain, great wealth in God's eyes. How do you do that? Well, to do that, number one, you do so by living in knowledge, you won't take anything with you. So now we're just kind of summarizing everything. Here's our takeaways for today, okay, for the whole past three sermons. How do I do that? How do I pursue that? Well, I do so by living in the knowledge we don't take anything with us. Number two, I do so by living with the attitude of being satisfied, content with food in our belly and clothes on my back. So I gotta, I gotta control my knowledge and my thinking and my attitude, and therefore producing godliness with contentment is great gain. You also do so by operating according to God's economic principles. Labor and work diligently. Save and spend wisely. Plan and prepare circumspectly. Give and receive abundantly. And my friend, you will never, ever go wrong doing things God's way. 1 Timothy chapter 6 proves it. Father, we thank you so very much for your word. What an enjoyment it has been to study your word, to learn what you have to say. And Father, I pray this morning, even now in this invitation, that, Lord, you may move in our hearts and our lives. Maybe there's a young person here who hadn't really thought about money and how to use it and what your economic principles are. Lord, I pray you've used tonight, uh, this morning, this message to encourage them and challenge them. Maybe there's an adult here, and, Father, reality is that uh, we, we've kind of allowed ourselves to believe that we're entitled, we deserve something. Lord, may we get back to knowing and having the knowledge that we have been endowed by you. That, Father, every good gift comes from you. And, Lord, may we in turn apply your biblical principles. Lord, you know the need in every heart. As we've covered much this morning, I pray that you would work in this invitation as only you can. Father, maybe there's one here who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. May they come to understand that wealth and money and gain will do them nothing for all eternity, that they need Jesus Christ. May they see that great need of putting their faith and trust in him. Father, would you work in this invitation? Would you speak to us and would you help us to be uh, secure in our knowledge of your word? And then, Father, may we be passionate in our living out of its truth, those principles we've seen even today. Blessings of this invitation as only you can. With heads bowed and eyes.